Well, hi, everyone. My name is Lena Evangemra, and I'm your host. I am so glad you're back. We are finishing up a series on difficult conversations. And if you've been following this podcast at all the past few weeks, then you know we're talking about uncomfortable conversations about racism in the church. And what a time to talk about this. Uh, our country is talking about this, and we're following the news and And uh, lots of great things are happening in the church. This podcast series has really been aimed at the church. Uh, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, uh, as we seek to lead the world in reconciliation and love. And unfortunately, we've not always exemplified that in the best way. And so we want to learn from our black brothers and sisters. And today I have the privilege of having a guest that I believe is going to continue to teach us in this journey. And so I'm, I'm so excited to welcome a friend of mine, Sheila Wise Rowe. And Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about her before I bring her in uh, to the conversation so we can find out more about her, even from uh, her life and experience. But Sheila is a graduate of Tufts University and Cambridge College, which sounds really smart to me, Sheila, by the way, and uh, has a master's degree in counseling psychology. For over 24 years now, she's counseled abuse and trauma survivors in the United States. Although uh, I can't wait to hear more about her life in Johannesburg, South Africa. If you know me at all, you know South Africa is on my bucket list. I can't wait to spend some time there. And she ministered uh, in that area to the homeless and the abused, specifically women, and taught counseling and trauma-related courses for a decade. Um, Sheila is the exec executive director of the Rehoboth House and the co-founder of the Sirene Movement, which is an online community for people of color seeking healing for racial trauma. So her new book, which is uh, out uh, this spring, I believe, um, by IVP, is called Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience, much um, in line with her expertise, which is something that I can't wait to find out more about. Sheila, it's good to have you on today. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you are in Boston or the area. How'd you end up there? That sounds so I random. Am, I was born here. So I'm a Bostonian. Uh, my parents uh, were actually raised in Virginia, in uh, Accomack County, Virginia. And then they transplanted here in the 50s uh, oh. to Boston. My father was in the Navy and um, my mother came a little bit after he arrived and they settled here. And so I was born here. Yeah. So can you talk Boston? Ha ha ha. You know what? I, I don't know if I ever really talked Boston and I... I lost, you know, because if your parents have a certain kind of an accent, you generally right. kind of follow that. And I think I did that. And then when I went to college, it just kind of morphed into what I, how I speak right yeah. now. I would say it's a very, yeah, very normal American accent. I spent one summer Sometimes, though. Sometimes I'll say ka, you know. Yeah. <laughs> What's the old, I packed my ka in Harvard Yard. my ka in Harvard Yard, exactly. <laughs> I like Boston. I, I really do. It's a great city. You know, it's funny, Sheila. I don't think of it as a as a black city. I'll be honest. I mean, I think of it as very white. Well, tell us a bit about growing up in Boston. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. It really is. Um, so I I grew up in Boston um, in the the '60s, like my childhood '60s. Mm -hmm. I um, was part of a voluntary busing program. I write about that in the book um, as part of part of my story and my experiences of being one of uh, one black child in my class. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think there was actually another, there was another one, um, but we were bus, there were about 20 of us. And um, this particular program bus children around the city. So I wasn't that far from home, but I, um, it was a world away. And mm -hmm. it was my first experience of being in a predominantly white environment and, Um, and really experience a lot of really painful um, situations there where I, you know, had my intellect questioned, um, experienced humiliation. It was really a damaging experience for me in those early years. And this is before court mandated busing. Mm -hmm. And um, that followed um, in the 70s, actually early 70s. So I was a part of this Operation Exodus was the name of the program up until the 70s. And then court mandating busing ha happened and that's when everything erupted. So people may be familiar with Boston's history around the busing era and just the, the protests and um, just the fights. And it was just a really nasty, nasty time um, in the city and growing up in Boston around that time, there were, there were definite areas that if you were a black person, you did not go, like mm. you did not go to Carson beach. You didn't go to South Boston. You didn't go to Charlestown. 
Um, and you certainly didn't go to some of the other outer suburban areas. You basically, the world was pretty small. It was Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. Those are the communities. Um, and did you have a choice in, in the school? Like, did you ever tell your mom, like, I'm just, I just don't want to go to this. I'd rather just go to a school in the neighborhood. Was it an honor to be bust or how did you view it culturally within the context of your family even? Yeah. Well, my, my parents, um, and several other parents, because the school, schools were so bad in the community that they felt this is an opportunity to get our, our kids a better education. And so I think in many ways, I, um, I kind of internalized that message that this was important to them. And so I didn't feel that I could say, I don't want to be here. Um, there were incidents where they had to go up to the school and intervene when they accused me of cheating on tests and stuff. Mm. It's just ridiculous um, because it just, that was just totally not my personality. I was very shy. Um, but the, you know, the thought of me saying to them, no, I don't want to go here. I refuse to go. That just, I mean, this is the 60s. <laughs> Kids don't well, and I would imagine you were afraid. I mean, like, would you internal, like, thinking about racial trauma, even in those years, early years of elementary and middle school, and did you just tend to internalize it? I mean, I would imagine pe- people even either fight it, but how much can you fight as a young, shy person? Right. Um, how did you handle it? A lot of it was internalizing it. And I, you know, I share that I, I tried to, in my own way, communicate I don't want to be there by being sick. So I would, I had ear infections, I had hives, I, you know, my body was responding to the trauma of going there um, every day. And so sometimes I, I, my mother and father were like, okay, you can stay home. Um, but there was never any sense of, okay, well, what's going on there that you, they knew it was hard, but I don't think that they knew the extent of how hard it was. So so I internalize it as manifesting in my body, but also just in terms of how I perceive myself as a, a black girl and later as a black woman and mm. always this sense that I have to like really work like extra, extra hard to kind of prove myself while at the same time, you know, having like this, you know, imposter syndrome, like, like I don't really belong here and they'll eventually find out. And well, you, you did well in school. You went yeah. to Tufts and then Cambridge yeah. College. Yeah. yeah, Cambridge College in Boston or That's in Boston. It's in Boston. So I mean, was there a point where you sort of said, just not to be crass, but like, screw that, I'm just going to go for it? Yeah, I. You know what? I think that I see. It's very interesting because um, it can people can either feel like it's either or, like it's either screw them, I'm going to go for it, yeah. or I'm going to just fold in and just you know collapse. Um, but you know, people can do both. So, so I, I certainly was one of those, like, I'm going to go for this. And in my uh, guidance counselor said, don't bother applying to Tufts because you're never going to get in. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I, I was determined, like, I'm going to apply. I'm going to apply. And I did get in. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but then I went there and my first year, I was totally overwhelmed. It just, I was like a fish out of water. Um, and I, I almost flunked out the first year because I didn't know what to do or how to navigate this environment where a lot of the students came from middle to upper class families. There were even, um, students who were from outside of the U S and, uh, who were, you know, their children millionaires. And so it was that, and then it was just being in um, living in the majority white context on campus and, and not, um, knowing what I should do or the expectations. And so, um, I you have to be really street smart. Well, or yeah. I mean, I think that it was, there was a culture there and, um, and I didn't know, I didn't go to prep school, so I didn't really understand that. Right. Um, and so it really was by the end of the, my first semester, I got a wake up call. Um, and the Dean was like, look, <laughs> you, you know what you, 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 we accepted you here, you belong here, but you got to take this seriously. You're not doing what you need to do. And I was getting mm-hmm. distracted partying and just, and so that was a wake up call and I, it woke me up. So I, well, well, that's a good time to talk about your faith. I mean, where did that come in? Did you grow up in the church? Yeah, I, well, Yes and no. Um, my aunt was a very strong Christian. My parents 
um, were members of the Nation of Islam uh, when uh, early 60s, Malcolm X, and, mm-hmm. um, and then when he died and then Martin Luther King died, they kind of weren't anything. Um, and then my mother became a believer, but my aunt was the person who we would go with my cousins and stuff to her church. And it was, um, it was just one of those churches where they had a youth program. It was like something to do. I wouldn't say, you know, I had a sense that God existed. So I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, an atheist or agnostic. I I knew there was a God. I just didn't really know what that meant for me. So then I, um, I didn't become a Christian until after college. And, um, and it was at that point that I really uh, came to the end of myself. I was, uh, you know, had graduated, was working as a social worker for the state, and um, burnt- that'll get you saved. <laughs> oh yeah, well you saved and burnt out. So I had, <laughs> yeah, and then I, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, then I was involved with a, a guy who was um, a cocaine addict and dealer. Oh. So all of that kind of came together and I had a crisis point of realizing that I really didn't have any control over my life. And, um, and my mom had become more recently a, a serious Christian at that point. Wow. So we would have these faith discussions all along. Well, mm. um, and so um, that was the point at which I realized like, okay, just from the conversations with her, I need to do something. And so um, I actually just on my own one evening just surrendered my life to Jesus. That's awesome. Yeah, this was eighty four. Wow. So then, did you join a white church or any church? Like, what was your early church salvation experience like? So I, um, I was living in the south end of Boston, and so I looked around for churches. Like, where am I? I really didn't. My mother was at a Pentecostal church, and um, I wasn't. I didn't, wasn't feeling the four hour services. So, <laughs> well, and you know, there aren't that many churches. I mean, I remember the, in the eighties, I guess that's what I, I don't recall it being a beacon. There's a lot more churches now, but it wasn't oh, like yeah. a lot for the gospel necessarily at the time. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, I mean, it's a great church, but um, I was like, eh. So, and no, and, I mean, in general, Boston would have been a harder city maybe to find a church in compared to some of the other towns, I guess. I, at least that's been my recollection from that era. And was that, would that like, was it hard to find a church or? Well, you know what? The, there weren't a lot of churches in. So I was still in that kind of college age crowd. I graduated yeah. from Tufts. I still had friends who were in the kind of Cambridge area where Harvard is and MIT. And there was a, a small Assembly of God church in Harvard Square in Cambridge. And wow. um, and I, and it met at a very liberal church building. I can't remember what the name of the church was, but anyway, so I, um, I joined that church and it was the same church that Brian Stevenson was at, who was, um, really? yeah. at the time you were both there. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, we kind of, our paths crossed as I came in, he went out. <laughs> so could you tell, I mean, out of curiosity, I mean, Brian Stevenson, for those listening was, it's just mercy, yeah. the story he, that he wrote and the movie, of course, many of you have seen. So, I mean, did you realize at the time, like the awesomeness of this guy? No, or was, no, no, you know, no, still no. sort of early. It's just kind of cool when you hear stories like yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, very early, early days. I mean, there's a, there's a, a few people I'm still in contact with. Um, and uh, it, yeah, so it was a really, it was a wonderful time. For me, yeah. just growing and learning. And the pastor was really an incredible teacher. Um, so the church was um, a mixed church, predominantly white. Um, and the pastor, it was a white pastor, the Assembly of God Church. And um, he had, he, I think he also taught at seminary, but really, really learned a lot there. Um, and uh, so I was there for a number of years. And then... Um, during that time, there was this, uh, the HIV was kind of on the scene, arrived on the scene. And um, having become a Christian late in life, I had a lot of friends who were gay and um, who were diagnosed and um, who were dying. And a lot of guys in the church, actually, who were um, like the pastor's right-hand man or whatever, and who actually, in, in many cases, they were living quite a closeted lifestyle. And so they were, um, they were contracting AIDS and, and basically abandoned by the church in terms oh. of 
uh, pastors like visiting them in the hospital, any of that. And, and many of them, their families didn't know. Um, and so uh, the church that I was at um, and I, we, I started a, an AIDS ministry at the, wow. uh, the church. And so we were, I was Christian AIDS ministry. And so we would do hospital visitations and try to link um, people back with their churches and also connect with family members. And um, it was a hard time because it was yeah. very painful seeing friends die and, um, and also to see the lack of church support. That was really yeah. sad. It was such a, I mean, you think about that era, it's so different than now. I mean, now people with HIV obviously do so well. I mean, when you really think about yes. it, but right. it, people were so scared of, of yep. HIV at the time. And I guess in some ways we're living through COVID now. It's interesting to sort of, hmm. you know, same thing, but sort of, you know, like like it's how much changes in just, what, 20 years. And, right, and, um, right. Yeah. That's exactly. crazy. So is that how you ended up? What motivated you to move to South Africa? So um, that's it. There was a connection there. <laughs> so I had a feeling. Well, was, <laughs> so the, this, the 80, around 85, 6, 7, that's when the HIV stuff was surfacing. Um, I was involved in ministry there. And I, I really burnt out at a certain point because I um, – I actually had a friend who lived with me and he ended up dying. It was just really a hard time. And um, I uh, then was like, okay, I can't do this. I can't do ministry in that way. I'm doing, I'm carrying too much. And so I um, stopped and I just did focused on counseling and individually, individual and group work. I also worked in secular settings as well. So I did, a lot of counseling with um, kids and adults. I did some stuff in schools. So we circled back around until about 2000 and um, 2000, 2001. There was like this huge, um, like uh, I would say in South Africa, particularly, but in other African countries, they were seeing this huge spike in, in HIV cases. Hmm. And, and I just, I had this sense like the Lord was saying, okay, this is kind of circling back around to this issue of, you know, what are, what is it that I want to do? Through, I want to do something through you um, in this area. So we, I went on a mission strip in, um, in 2001. And that is when um, and it was specifically with an organization, a ministry that was doing work with um, HIV and uh, felt a sense of calling to South Africa and just the people that we met. And, uh, and then we, my husband was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and I just was like, okay, I'm going to leave that. And Lord, if that's, you need to talk to him. If that's what we're supposed to do. We'll <laughs> Minor do. detail, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 really. Like, and so we, in 2004, we, we brought like 20 people to South Africa. And during that time, God really spoke clearly to him. Like, yes, I want you here. So yeah. in 2005, we moved to Johannesburg and we were there until 2016. Well, that's an interesting time to be in South Africa. So you lived yeah. sort of through a lot of racial turmoil mm, mm. there before coming back here. Yeah, yeah. And, and now living through this. So, you know, maybe, you know, tell us a little, give us a flavor of how it felt to be, now you were American, but yeah. black. And so, and Johannesburg, of course, a, a crazy place in some ways. So how did that, like, was Nelson Mandela, like, give us a little flavor of what yeah. was happening in that time. Well, by then, um, you know, <sighs> It, there actually wasn't as much, um, what do I want to say? They had, they had had the, um, the truth and reconciliation commission as an, you know, way to try to get people to, um, reconcile in some way or just own up to the truth of, of the, the history and the truth of people, the, their crimes, um, mm -hmm. in order to try to work through that. I, I feel like it did work and then it didn't work. Um, and I, the, the issue around racial trauma, I, I feel like is still an issue to this day in, in South Africa and that there were people who were not able to fully process that trauma. And so, um, a lot of, um, folk have pushed it down and whenever you push stuff down, eventually there's an eruption of some sort. And so there's a lot of what I'm seeing. I, you know, South Africa was wonderful and it was really difficult at the same time. Um, beautiful, beautiful people, amazing creativity, and um, and yet very hard. And it's particularly difficult being a woman out mm. there. 
And um, so you deal with a lot of the racial trauma there, or was it more like working with the abused woman and the homeless? It was more working with uh, with the, the homeless and abused women. It was more around their that kind of trauma. Right. Um, you know, the racial stuff would come up because they would certainly have to they face that on an right. ongoing basis. And we, um, the church that we were attending uh, is a, a church. It's an every nation church, and so they had mm. um, they had their focuses on campuses, and uh, mm. and so they had lots of students. Um, many black students who were processing their um, their racial trauma, and so we we actually did more of that kind of stuff where they're processing just healing brokenness from the past, but also racial trauma. Um, and we mm. did groups there. When you came back, you haven't been back in the U.S. that long. You said 2016. Did I hear that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so when did this concept develop in your mind about writing a book on specifically healing from racial trauma? When did you sort of start gleaning? There's a thing here besides just racism. And yeah. Right. It feels like, you know, a diagnosis in a sense, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I, in some ways, this is not new in terms of that, the notion of the, that people have experienced racism, their consequences that they've experienced in their lives, in their bodies, um, emotionally. Um, there's And so clients that I had been seeing, um, individually, uh, in groups, issues around race would come up uh, in those in those contexts, and and the need to really work through them. I think that thing that was different was coming back here and seeing so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it was everything was on the surface. It wasn't pushed down anymore. It just felt like, wow, you know, either people were really um, fearful, or they were enraged, or um, you know, people acting out in their anger. There was um, just, you know, you know, some of this, you know, we, it's justifiable that there's, you know, right. experiencing this racism, you're going to respond. But it, 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 there was a lot of pain. And, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, just in praying and just like, okay, well, what am I? Yeah, I, I joined a writer's group, Redbud Writers, and mm-hmm. um, which we're a part of. And, um and it was during that time of just of writing and thinking, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do in terms of writing? I wrote articles and then felt this sense of the Lord's prompting to write the book. I, you know, I'm fascinated. Uh, one of the things you talk about in the book, that's, it's always been a theme that I gravitate to is when you, where's God in our pain? Sort of that mm-hmm. concept. And I, I really, I would love for you to focus in on a bit of that. I mean, I think we could talk about, you mentioned a bit of some of the signs of racial trauma, so much of the anger that even now we see coming out of the protest, you can understand after decades and, and even longer than decades of, of surviving, you know, and, and trying to make it. But where is God in this, in this racial trauma? And how have you come to grips with, why does God allow, why has God allowed it to go on? Yeah. I, you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers. Um, I, I feel though that, um, it's, it's important to have like to hold the whole story. And so in the midst of the trauma and in the midst of racism, that there's a way in which we are, and I want to, I'll just speak for black folk, but I mean, the book does, it's not just around black um, folk facing racism, but indigenous people and other people of color as well, Asians and um, Latino population, et cetera. Uh, but for as, as a black person, um, this sense and this knowledge that God has been about something all along and that there are places where God has been faithful and has shown up and has, um, you know, done healing, he's provided, he's restored. There are ways in which uh, we are extremely, extremely strong people mm-hmm. um, because a, a lot of it's been forged in the fire. Um, mm. And so I don't believe that, you know, God has abandoned us or um, I, I feel that he's constantly at work and, and, and my uh, posture needs to be one of remembering what has he done over generations, not just in my own life, but he has done, he has done and, and showed himself strong over generations. Have bad things happened? Yes. 
Mm. Um, but he has done that. And so what are those things? And recounting them, remembering them. Because I think often we're like the Israelites in that we don't remember. We pretend mm. to forget. Um, and then looking at, you know, what is he doing right now um, in my life? I'm looking at what's going on in the country and, and I can fix on what is just like, you know, oh my gosh, that's, that's really hard. Or um, And it's important to recognize those things. And so recognize what happened to George Floyd mm. um, and the, and, but yet at the same time, what comes out of that is a call for justice. And what seems like in this moment that um, unlike any other, there the people who have gone, everybody has gone out, almost everybody has gone out on the street. So I'm, I mean, everybody in terms of every ethnic group, race, et cetera, out there protesting um, and insisting on um, change, that's very different. And so out of something that is really horrific and tragic um, and brutal, uh, there's, there's this moment where it could, could, there actually could be a shift and a change. And so, and I believe that God is in the shift and the change part. And to describe what a shift looks like beside, you know, moving past protests, what is your vision of what it should look like or what it could look like? Well, you know what? I feel like just like the word says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord, mm-hmm that this is a moment where the church has has an opportunity to step up and actually, you know, actually do something in a very concrete way to bring about um, just restoration, reconciliation, healing, justice. The question is whether the church is going to do that or not, because the the world will try to do some part of that. It's not going to be complete. It's going to maybe even a mess. Um, but we we have an opportunity to do something. Will we actually engage in the really difficult work of, of dismantling systemic racism? I mean, that means some hard questions, some hard looking at internally at you know uh, certain you know denominations, looking at how have they uh, dealt with race in the past. Um, how is that church built? How is that building built? Was that building built mm-hmm. by slaves, that church building? Um, you know, what are the ways in which uh, racism has, you know, snuck its way into the church or, or blatantly been paraded through the church? Uh, and kind of saying no more. We don't want to do that. We actually want to make repair for the damage that we did and the ways in which we were complicit in this and we're going to own it. It's not about just, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but it's, I'm sorry. And if there's a need to repay or repair the damage that was done, then we're going to step up and do that. And so, and there are churches that are doing that. There are individuals. I was going to say, what grade would you give the church right now in terms of how they're handling this discussion and, um, responding to maybe the criticism of the way they've handled it before? I, I feel like in, in terms of responding to the criticism, I feel like a D because I feel like um, you have you have a, a segment of Christendom that it's owning it. It's like, yes, yes, we did do that. Yes. Mm. Then there's another whole section that is in total denial that doesn't mm. want to believe the facts, the history, doesn't want to. Um, and so I would say on, on that level, um, I would give it a low grade. I feel like uh, probably a C plus in terms of uh, what we're seeing is a lot of people. I, I hope it's not virtue signaling. Like, look, we're I don't know if that's really real. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it is, but I don't know. I just, I just don't know. So that's why the C plus right. um, because it has to translate into concrete things. Does it change on the level of the members or the leaders? I think it's both, but the leaders set the stage, the tone for this is the direction that we're going in. Um, Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, being informed by the, the parishioners as well, but the leader, if the leaders aren't even doing it on that level, you know, do you use the use of COVID as an excuse? Well, we're not meeting in person. Like, you know what, how much of this is, I'm curious how it'll look 
when people are meeting, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I'm a, I'm a, I want to, I want things fixed, right? I mean, I, I'm an ER doctor. I want to put a needle in the pus and fix yeah. it up. Yeah. And it's sometimes, you know, you get a little, like, I know you talk a lot about racial fatigue and, yeah. and how do you keep from it? Is it people saying all the time, well, this is going to be a long haul. Like, I just don't want it to drag out. I want to fix it. Can, yeah. can, how does this happen quicker or is it yeah. possible? You know what, what, what's interesting is part of the protest, some of the things that we're actually seeing happen around the country, just in terms of judicially, um, you know, whether it's some states mandating uh, that, you know, reporting of, you know, officers who have, you know, a laundry list of complaints against them. There's mm-hmm. um, changes in some states' laws. And, and so th- those are, that's new and that's quick, which is surprising. Um, but at the same time, you know, things like changing the label on the syrup and, um, mm. you know, okay. But, the, you know, the reality, though, is a lot of people in those corporations are saying, don't believe it. <laughs> They're like, right. we work here. We know what it's really like. And so right. they're throwing a bone, like, oh, throw them a bone. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, there are some things like monuments coming down, which I think actually need to be taken mm-hmm. down. They need to be put in the museum where they belong or in a basement mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm hoping that it actually translates in, in the church into having leadership and just an approach to uh to to how we do church how we do fellowship that is really more inclusive and representative of um of you know that revelations vision of scripture you know of of what the body looks like there there are two areas i find that are touchy with the conservative sort of Mm -hmm. old school white whatever you want to call it and i'd love your thoughts on it i mean one is the whole Black Lives Movement movement. Yeah. And so this discussion of, I, I've had multiple people come on on this program and the podcast. And, and you know, this idea, I think across the board, my Black friends and listening to Black voices online, there is a big um, amount of, um, it, it, I, don't, I don't know the word I'm trying to look for, but there, there's something to be said about just saying, okay, Black Lives Matter. Period. That's it. And I think the conservative Christians struggle with that. They want to, you know, say the but. I don't believe in this movement. That's Marxist socialist. So this is one area that I found to be troublesome. How do you, how do you address that? And the second one, because I think you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on both, is the whole white fragility thing. Yeah. And sort of this idea, you know, you've heard this discussions. It's you know, the, specifically D'Angelo's book and yeah. the idea of systemic racism, and you can't argue against this because the minute you argue against it you become you know you're representing what what fragility is and so how how do you how do you compromise in these discussions or is there no room for compromise well these two groups the hyper right you know and then the black movement that's going you know you're not seeing it and the other people are going well you're not seeing it because we don't you know how do you come to some place of hearing each other well you know what i think the whole question about the you know black lives matter it's two. One is a is a proclamation and a statement of a reminder of the fact that Black Lives Matter, and there are ways in, in this country where it has not mattered. Um, lumping it with an organization and saying, "Well, that's what that means." The vast majority of Black people are not saying yes. All the tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement, I co-sign that. They're not saying that. They're saying. All we're doing is highlighting something. We are not saying other people's lives don't matter. Your lives have mattered, clearly. So we're just reminding you that, you know what? Our lives matter. And so mm. it's not just about police brutality. It is beyond that. It's it's systemic. Is it possible to dissect the, mo- the that group, the movement, the organizers, the, the politics of it, away from the human part of it? Or is it impossible at this point? You almost wish that a different slogan was given to, you know, like, the movement versus the idea, which I think is, I understand that that, that couldn't have happened, but do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there a way where people don't, I almost feel like white conservatives feel guilty saying black lives matter, not because the black lives don't matter, but because they think by saying that they're supporting the abortionist, Marxist, socialist, Jesus hating groups. What do you think of that? 
I, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if they could have come up with, we could have come up with anything that would have been okay. Seriously. <laughs> I feel like, right. I really do. I feel right. like. I agree. No, I agree with you. Yeah, I do everything agree. is just like, pro, let's prop up Black Lives Matter. Let's prop up, let's just say critical race theory. Let's throw that out there. Let's throw right. up Marxist. I feel like, okay, I, I don't really care about any of those labels. The reality mm-hmm. is, what is, what are black and brown people saying? Are you listening to what they are saying about their experience? Can we just listen to what they're saying? Um, that requires a level of humility of, mm-hmm. I, I want to listen. I want to understand. Like when you, when you say black lives matter, why do you feel that you need to say that? Can I hear you? Can I hear uh, a black person say that and, and, understand it from their perspective why they feel like there's a need for that and i think a lot of this is around you know will we will, you know will white people listen to black and brown mm. voices will you listen how to will them? how will black voices be heard in white church specifically church spaces what are some practical ways to 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 give an opportunity for those black voices to be heard that's going to require, um, a, you know, some kind of action from the top in terms of mm. the, the uh, church leadership, in terms of bringing the, those voices in and those connections. People have done creative things. They've shared pulpits. Um, that's one way. Uh, there's been a lot of kind of people poo-pooing book clubs. I, I say, you know what? Yes, a book club is a waste of time if it's just to read a book and then move on to the next thing. But if your book is, and I've, I've, heard from people who read books they've read just mercy and are just like oh my gosh suddenly they were awakened to you know mass incarceration and and wanting to do something about it that's the thing so uh you know i i find it interesting at this point you know just the fact that people like well i didn't know it's like how did you not know you know what did you do and say to your convince yourself that that wasn't true um Mm -hmm. something had to happen so um, you know, because the book, the libraries are full of books. <laughs> you know? Your book does a fantastic job at the beginning of, of going through some terms that are very common in this yeah. in this discussion that I think is, is essential. I almost feel like every person should buy your book for that yeah. uh, because there's a lot of words that I don't know that we fully understand. And you do a tremendous job in speaking of the second part of, this, of the question I asked you, which I'm sure you still want to say something about. You talk about white fragility yeah. and you talk about systemic racism versus individual racism in a very detailed fashion that I found to be extremely helpful. Yeah. And I think that that's the part that I think many white people don't get. They just think, well, racism is somebody who hates black people. That's not, that's not it. Yeah, that is it, but it's not all. There's two layers. It's like oh, both many layers. It's you know, racism is historical. It's interpersonal between people. It's systemic. You see it in public spaces. So all of those monuments, people are like, well, that's our heritage. You know what? What your heritage? That huge big statue of that man who basically wanted to overthrow the U.S. government and keep slavery intact, basically communicates to black people that look who is in charge. We are all powerful. You really should still be in chains. That's the message. That's a message that's being communicated. Environmental racism, where we are disproportionately placed in communities where the water is bad, the air is bad. Mm. Um, it is intentional and it's deliberate. Um, you know, there's the internalized racism. We talked about that already. And so if you look at all of those layers, it's not just about people hating people. That's It's that and more. Mm. How you talk a little bit in your book about uh, safe folk, people who are safe. Mm. How have you found safe folk? Like, who what, describe to me what that person looks like? Because particularly, are, are, can can you? How hard is it to find a white safe folk? Yeah, you know what I, I what I've appreciated are the people who are friends who um, who are white who have uh, committed to learn. So it isn't that I'm I am the teacher. But they've committed to learn. They they have committed to read. They've committed to have other levels of engagement. They're really close friends of mine, and and we can engage on that level. Um, they can get it wrong, <laughs> um, and yet be in a place of of humility of wanting to understand better. And and I'm in a position of of wanting to extend grace. Um, knowing that person's heart, like they really want to know and they really want to um, 
to be a support and, you know, more than just an ally, but a brother and sister in Christ. And so, um, it's, it's someone who has the ability, uh, to listen and to learn and who's committed to do that. Um, Ibrahim Kendi talks about being an anti-racist. And so it's not just about, well, I'm not racist. It's like, well, how are you, are you not being that mm-hmm. in what way, you know, so these are people who on, on varying levels have committed to do that. So in, in the ways in which they engage at work or at church, church right, you know, right. they're looking it's for overwhelming if you like, so, so somebody might be listening and be like, well, I want to be a safe folk. And so they hunt down the black person in there because realistically the church is still so split that you literally you might not have one black family, but you probably don't have more than five in some black yeah. white spaces. And, and so, you know, how claustrophobic does it get to have like 15 white people come after you and be like, Hey, we want to be anti-racist or is it a flattering? Like how, how, what's your reaction? It's not flattering. It's not flattering. Well, I, I wouldn't imagine so, but how, how, do you, how do you balance that? Do you just have to earn time, space, like mm-hmm. friendship? Yes, literally. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's time and space come, you know, I think the thing is that it, it can feel, you know, at the same time we're dealing with trauma because right. it's, it's ongoing. Um, and so on top of that, to have someone come, multiple people come and tell us uh, and ask us to do to help them to do the work. Like, mm-hmm. oh, can you give me a list of whatever? It's like, you know what? There are plenty of lists out there. Go find a list. I don't need to be the person to give that list. Um, you know, so it's it's one about how is it that have you already cultivated relationships with people um, and just being in each other's lives and like really being in each other's lives? Um, and if that is not the case, then there needs to be that kind of cultivating, you know, that cultivating of relationship in order to really come alongside people because mm-hmm. it's not safe to just any random person. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's like, and, and unfortunately you're going to have to prove that. Yes. I'm really here to be um, a support. And, mm-hmm. um, and I also want to receive from you. That's the other piece. I, Cause I, I think that there's often like this narrative, you know, that uh, I, I don't know the, Black and brown people don't have anything to contribute when, in fact, we really do. We have a whole lot to contribute um, to relationships and to the church. Yeah, I mean, and it's like now, how do you move from becoming just a poster child for, Mm -hmm. you know, where you're really, truly an integral part? I think this is a challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, I still dream of, I mean, I I hate the... uh, the, the, the splits of the church. There's, you know, your segregated Sunday hour, which... I know people have talked about for a while, but is there, I still wonder, is there ever a world or when, how long, oh Lord, will will that go on? You know what, one one of the things that I think people need to recognize is that the black church came out of a space where we were not allowed to be in churches. Yeah, you're not the first person to say that on a podcast. And I I found that the first time I heard it, I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm I'm from Lebanon, didn't grow up here, but it's true, right? And Mm -hmm. now it's like, what are you supposed to do? Right, right. And the thing is that right at this point, the the black church has been like a haven for folk. It's like, you know, you're facing racism out there in the workplace, in your community or outside your community. And then church is the place where, for black folk, for many, it's the place where you can actually be you yeah and um and so it's it has that that purpose of really um being this not just a safe haven against racism but a place where the presence of god is is felt and where we receive strength to get back out there and fight another day and so um, it makes me sad but i totally understand it on a scale of one to ten ten being completely healed from racial trauma where do you find yourself on the spectrum right now? You know what? I don't, I'm not going to be healed of 100% of racial trauma because it is ongoing. And, mm. you know, when I talk about just the multiple layers of it, I feel like I've dealt with a lot of the, the um, transgenerational racial trauma from my, in my family line. So I feel like there's a, there's some places of resolution there there's still some unanswered questions that I'm still looking at, exploring, praying about. Um, I feel like personally, the personal racial trauma from the past, I've dealt with the school stuff. I mm. really have worked through. I've done therapy. I've done group work. 
Um, so I, I feel like that's been resolved. Right now, the issue is really about vicarious trauma and um, just the microaggressions and things that um, I just face on a regular basis. And that will continue until probably until Jesus comes. I was going to say, right? Yeah. Human nature, sadly. But we come to the end here of our discussion, and and I I know that people are going to want your book. And I'm going to give away three copies of your book to listeners who email me. But um, what are two or three practices for resilience that you have integrated into your life as it pertains to your walk with the Lord and and developing the strength that clearly resonates from your words and your heart and your ways? Yeah. Um, I I think first and foremost is it is uh, my relationship with the Lord and really um, being rooted in in that and, and my approach to prayer that is listening prayer. So it's a two-way communication. It's not just about me talking to God, but, but really listening because I, mm-hmm. I feel like it's the tendency I have is to not, you know, something happens where there's vicarious trauma and I just kind of take it in. I can, I can still have that tendency to do that, but then I notice like something is off and just in prayer and getting quiet, the Lord will reveal like, this is, this is what the issue is. And, mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity for that to come to, to come out and to, for me to, to lay that before him. And also to, um, I have a great circles of friends who I can mm-hmm. process things with and get prayer. That's been really, really important um, for me. And, um, ethnically diverse or do you tend to gravitate? No, it's different? both. So I have a group of, of, uh, black sisters who I, we connect with and we share and we pray. And then I have a, another group of, of sisters mm-hmm. in Christ who are, it's diverse. Um, and it's a similar thing that we, um, and I would say that the women in that uh, group, uh, are for the most part are women who are, um, justice minded. And so that's been, that's been really, really important. Um, and then just other practical things just around making sure that I'm, present in my life, present to the places of joy um, that's happening in any given day. Uh, that's really, really essential mm-hmm. because it can be, you know, social media can just be overwhelming. And, you know, so I have to limit how much I spend on it um, because it can, you can just be despairing by the time you're done. Uh, and um, so I would say those things and, and probably the last would be was physically being able to, um, make sure that I'm finding ways of getting the stress out of my body so that, um, cause that has a detrimental effect on, um, what do you do? Boxing? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, well, it's more about being aware of like, how am I breathing? Am I, right. you know, walking is good. Um, mm. yeah, those kinds of things, exercising, uh, to just re- release some of this energy. Uh, that's really good. And I, I also do like uh, worship music and just soaking mm. in, in worship music um, and just feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit and just bring the peace that comes with that. That's really helped to sustain me and strengthen me. Yeah. Uh, has there been one life-changing book for you on this topic of, of racism, anti-racism? Hmm. A life-changing book. I know it's a tough question, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. If, you had, if you had to advise people besides your book and the Bible, let's just take those off the shelf. What would you, what would you want somebody who's listening right now to be like, man, you got, you got to just read this book. And, and interestingly, I mean, I don't care what it is. It doesn't even have to be a, a book on racism, but that you felt changed your worldview on, on all of these things, trauma, forgiveness, God, um, well, I really did. Um, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy was really wonderful. And um, Dominique Gilliard did a Christian book around re- uh, rethinking incarceration. That was really, that was really good. Um, uh, you know, then there are other people, um, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, her book, um, there are other people who write just beautifully. Uh, Aaliyah Joy, who's an Asian woman. Uh, I just love her. We had her on the podcast last year. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. I just, I just love her. Um, and uh, you know, 
Kathy Kang. And this is a bunch of people that I, 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 I read like a bunch and I read a lot mm-hmm. uh, for the book. Some of it's um, secular stuff as well, just kind of particularly around uh, some of the, just how we process trauma and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. um Trying to think is I'm sure after I after we end yeah you're gonna be like yeah we can always follow it up but this is helpful we've had a lot of great book suggestions uh guys who are listening now I I am gonna give away three uh, copies of Sheila Wiserose book and um go ahead and email me at lena at livingwithpower.org and just say you're interested in it we always get tons of requests for free books, which is awesome, right? But um, any last thoughts or words here? And still some hope for the church. Where do you see pockets of hope? Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I actually do see pockets of hope. I see, um, I, I see people beginning to actually get, get a, I don't want to say get a clue, but, but actually recognizing that um, this is, a moment for the church to step up. And and so there are ways in which I see sections of the body of Christ stepping up and saying, okay, we're going to take this seriously. And we're going to really look at how it is that we're doing church. And so Mm -hmm. they are putting out the statements, but they're moving beyond just putting out the statements. And they're actually looking at how do we go all the top all the way through like how do we have diverse staffs i'm seeing that on some christian universities they're looking at okay who, who do we have because it, it's not about um you know affirmative action it's about we want to reflect the body of christ the, the literal body of christ and so so we're going to prioritize this and we're going to not fold into kind of a white normativity that we'll just have people of brown and black people who feel comfortable in you know that space but they they bring in bring who they are and we want to welcome that and and so i i'm seeing that in pockets and i'm hoping that that uh will be a wave that really transforms the church amen how can people reach you sheila um, I am on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Everything's Sheila Wise Row, so it's at Sheila Wise Row on those. Oh, um, R-O-W-E? Yeah. Uh, yes, Sheila W I S E R O W E. Perfect. Yeah, and they can get your book on Amazon, Healing yeah. Racial Trauma. Yeah, they can also IV Press. Um, dot com. So the publisher uh, is also selling the books, and the book is actually everywhere. It's you can get it in book form, ebook, or audio book. It's a great book for a book club. Speaking of book yeah. clubs, it has wonderful questions at the end of each chapter, yes. and it's. I think it would be a great Zoom, you know, COVID project for those of you who are listening. Hey, I want to thank you for coming on today. It's been fun to hear your story. And every conversation I've had in this series has been instructive to me. And uh, I think drawing me a little step closer to seeing even more clearly um, so many of the dynamics that I've heard consistently across the board in men, women, different age ranges. There's a theme that comes up in uh, the conversation that I think we need to pay attention to. And for that, I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is this has been great. Thank you. That's awesome. Hey, guys, uh, it's been great being with you guys again. Uh, again, if you have any uh, questions for me, uh, check out our website, livingwithpower.org. There's a contact page there. I'd love to hear from you. We'll be launching a new series soon. I'll tell you more about it next week. In the meantime, enjoy your week and keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. He's the hope of the world. Take care. Take care.